Well, this week we, uh, we're continuing through, uh, through the Gospel of Luke, and, and we've come to the, the last week of Jesus' life now, the last few weeks here on Sunday mornings we've been looking at that. And uh, things, things have been progressing uh, and, and are going to continue to progress as we, as we continue working through Luke's gospel. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then uh, uh, even though Luke doesn't tell us, uh, we know from the other gospels that the clearing of the uh, temple took place on Monday. And then last week, we talked about uh, the religious leaders' confrontation with Jesus, which took place on Tuesday that week. Um, Next Sunday, uh, Pastor Tim is going to teach on the Passover meal, which uh, Jesus celebrated in the upper room with his disciples on Thursday. So you can see there's this progression uh, to the, the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion that's taking place. In the last six chapters of Luke's gospel, nearly everything seems to be consistently marching toward that event, the crucifixion and resurrection as well. Today, today's sermon, today's text is a little different, however. In today's text, Luke just kind of seems to hit the brakes and record Jesus' teaching not explicitly about his upcoming crucifixion and resurrection, but about things that are going to take place after that. And, and so while the narrative has been marching toward Good Friday and Easter Sunday, it, it's interesting that in Matthew and, and Mark's gospel, that they record Jesus sitting down. I mean, we just get this picture of Jesus pausing, sitting down on the Mount of Olives and giving this teaching to his disciples. So it's quite literally a, a pause in the action, if you will, so that I think so that our eyes can be lifted up just a bit from, from what's right in front from the Holy Week to be lifted up to, to focus on something a little bit farther down the road and, and equally as important as, as we'll see. The million-dollar question is, well, just how far down the road are we talking? And, and we'll, we'll get into some of that discussion this morning. But, but uh, we've come to the point in Luke's gospel where, just like Matthew and Mark, Luke records Jesus answering a question from his disciples by talking about things that are going to take place in the future. And, and as is often the case when it comes to prophetic passages in the Bible— There's no shortage of interpretations regarding Jesus' words. And so that's something that we'll be looking at this morning. But before we dive into the text for today, I wanted to frame this conversation in the right way so that we avoid a couple of extremes that that I believe prove to be unhelpful to us as followers of Jesus. And, And in order to do that, I wanted to read to you some words written by uh, a guy named J.C. Ryle that, that I just think, you know, I'm not going to say it better than him, so why not just read what he wrote? He, he's a, <clears throat> he was a 19th century minister in the Church of England. And so uh, he said it this way. He said, let us learn from our Lord's warning words to pray for a humble, teachable spirit whenever we open the pages of unfulfilled prophecy. 
Here, if anywhere, we need the heart of a little child and the prayer, open my eyes. And then he talks about these extremes. He says, let us beware on the one side of that lazy indifference which turns away from all prophetic scripture on account of its difficulties. Let us beware on the other side of that dogmatic, arrogant spirit which makes men forget that they are students and talk as confidently as if they were prophets themselves. He says, above all, let us read prophetic scripture with a thorough conviction that the study carries with it a blessing and that more light may be expected on it every year. The promise remains in full force. Blessed is he who reads. And at the end of the time, at the time of the end, the vision shall be unsealed. And so I, I do believe that if we, if we come to today's passage, like with any passage, with a humble, teachable spirit, then, then we'll be blessed as a result even if some of our specific questions regarding the future and the timing of it aren't met with clear answers, that there's still blessing that comes from the text. So, so with that being said, um, here's, here's the roadmap for this morning. So uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 21. We're going to work our way through the first three points of the sermon. And then after we've read those passages and discussed them, uh, we're going to pause just a bit and talk about the different ways that those passages are interpreted. And then we'll, uh, we'll look at the last 10 verses in the chapter, which, which I think provide the overall point of application for us this morning. So, so that's enough prep work. Let's, uh, let's get right into it. Luke chapter 21, and we're starting in verse uh, 5 this morning. It says, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So when we think about the place that the temple held in the lives of Jews at that time, I think it's highly unlikely that, that we would overemphasize its importance. I, I think if anything, we run the risk of underemphasizing the importance that the temple played uh, in, in, the, uh, in the common Jewish mind. From, from a religious perspective, the Temple Mount was the most holy place on the face of the earth. You could go nowhere and find a more holy place than the Temple Mount. And it's still that for, for Jews today, but especially then at that time. Uh, uh, tradition holds that, that the location of the temple w was the place where Abraham prepared to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, long before the temple was there. Um, the temple was the location of the Holy of Holies, God's dwelling place. It was, it was the resting place of the ark of the covenant. 
inside the Ark of the Covenant was a copy of the Ten Commandments in the Holy of Holies at the temple. Um, the temple was that physical place where God's presence dwelled with his people. The temple was that physical place that, that also provided a link back to the kings and the prophets of old. I, I mean, I, I'm trying to th- I was trying to think like, can, can we have that frame of mind as Christians today? And, I, you know, I, I would say, imagine knowing the exact locations where Jesus was born, where he was crucified, and where he was buried, resurrected. Not, not just, oh, it was maybe right here, but like actually knowing that these were the places that that happened. I mean, imagine the reverence and the awe you and I would feel if we were at one of those locations, you know, if we knew exactly where Jesus lay in that manger, if we knew exactly where the cross was on Good Friday, exactly the tomb where Jesus was laid. I mean, can you feel it inside of you, like what it would be like to be in that spot? There'd be a holiness, there'd be a reverence there, I think, that that we would feel And I think that maybe gives us a clue to how a Jew would have felt about the temple. So the temple was was highly significant, highly important from a religious perspective, but not just from a religious perspective. Uh, Herod the Great had expanded the temple complex and, and had made it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, some of the marble stones used to build the temple were 67 feet long. Imagine a stone, one stone, 67 feet long, seven feet high, nine feet wide. I mean, incredible. Uh, The building was adorned with gold and jewels, and the outer portion was, it's been said, was covered with sheets of gold that shone so brightly when the sun rose in the morning that, that you couldn't even look at it that you had to turn away because the reflection was so bright. So it's not just religiously significant, it's even culturally significant as well. So it's no wonder that the the disciples were marveling at it. And it's no wonder that, you know, when Jesus said that not one of those stones would be left on another, that's not just an interesting statement that Jesus is making. That, that's a shocking statement that Jesus is making. It would have been shocking due to the cultural significance, but it would have been shocking due to the religious significance as well. I think we can maybe understand why, why uh, during his religious, relig- religious trial, the charges brought against Jesus centered on his statements about the temple destruction. I mean, that's Ultimately, what, what the religious leaders condemned him for was his statements against the temple. We can, we can understand as well, I think, why the disciples felt compelled to ask Jesus, well, when's this going to take place? I mean, this is crazy. You're talking about the temple being destroyed. When is this going to happen, Jesus? Because that would have changed everything. I mean, the temple being destroyed would have changed everything for the Jews. If I were a Jew... I too would want to know when all that was going to go down. And so they asked Jesus about that. The only thing Jesus told them initially was, don't be terrified, it's not happening just yet. <laughs> don't be terrified, not, not, 
not quite yet. Yeah, you'll hear about wars, rebellions, but that's all normal. The end is still not here yet. I mean, that was, that was Jesus' initial response to the disciples. Maybe that was comforting. I don't know. I mean, I kind of hear that and say, I don't know if that was comforting or not. Um, but if the disciples would pay attention to all that was about to take place over the coming days, then I think they would come to understand why they didn't need to be terrified by the statement that Jesus made. Because when you think about it, the focal point of salvation and the focal point of relationship with God, which was on the temple at that moment, was shifting that that last week of Jesus' life. It was shifting all throughout his life, but it was really shifting that last week of Jesus' life. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, salvation, relationship with God, it was, it was about the temple. That's why Jesus immediately went into the temple. That's why he's seen throughout the week teaching in the temple. But by the time Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, salvation and relationship with God no longer centered upon the temple. It had shifted fully by that point. It was now upon Jesus himself. That's why by the end of the week, the focal point isn't the temple, it's the cross and the empty tomb. The temple building was going to be destroyed, but Jesus' followers didn't have to be terrified because Jesus himself represented the new dwelling of God with mankind. I mean, the temple was just days away from being, dare I say, useless compared to its previous significance. It was going to happen in just a matter of days. It didn't matter if it was going to be completely destroyed. It wasn't needed anymore. And you think about that, we think about our context today, how blessed we are as followers of Jesus to know that the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, is within us. We are now temples of God's presence. It's not this building that sits in Jerusalem, it's us. We are his temples. We, we don't put our hope in a building. We don't put our hope in a certain location on this earth. Wherever we go, God is with us. The building, you know, you think even this building, this church body, it can all be attacked, it can be persecuted, but God's presence remains with us through it all. That, that's, that's incredible. And that's a major shift. That's a major shift of, of thinking for the Jews. And and I think that's what Jesus goes on to address next. He kind of highlights the fact the temple's going to be destroyed, but you don't have to be terrified because, you know, I, I'm the new temple. I'm going to dwell with you. And then he moves on in, in verse 10, and he continues talking about the future. It says, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. 
Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." Now remember, Jesus prefaced all this by saying, don't be terrified, and then he immediately goes into that. I mean, he's not being coy regarding what lies ahead for the disciples personally. He plainly told them they would face persecution because of their devotion to him. And and the reference to um, synagogues as well as kings and governors seems to imply that the persecution is going to come both from the Jews and from the Romans. There will be religious persecution from the Jews. There will be cultural persecution uh, from the Romans. But even though difficulty lie ahead, and even though for some of them it would end with martyrdom, and he said, some of you will be put to death, Jesus wanted them to recognize both his presence with them in the midst of that persecution, but also the opportunity that the persecution would bring. There there would be great opportunity in their trials and in their arrests to bear witness to Jesus and his identity as uh, as the Son of God. I mean, uh, the fact that a, a small movement of followers would soon be taken before powerful kings and governors to give an account of their beliefs is pretty incredible when you think about it. And, and I, don't, I don't want to downplay their suffering that, that came along with that, but, but we can't allow the suffering to negate the incredible good that came about. Jesus' name and Jesus' ministry was about to be proclaimed in very public places to people of great power and great influence. And we can go on in in, uh, the book of Acts. Luke, as he writes the the second book, Acts, in chapter 4, there's the story there where Peter and John are brought before Jewish religious leaders to be examined. And they, they take that opportunity, they give their testimony, they proclaim who Jesus is, and once they have done that, the leaders recognize, well, these are just uneducated common men. But even so, they can't say anything to refute the miracles or or the testimony given. I mean, the very promise that Jesus gave was fulfilled just a matter of weeks after his ascension into heaven. It's pretty incredible to think about that. I mean, he told them that he would be with them, that he would give them the words to say, and that's exactly what happened. Pentecost took place, the Spirit came, chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, there they were, in front of the leaders, proclaiming who Jesus was. And, you know, when we think about us, most of us have, have, have not faced that type of persecution for our faith in Jesus. And and, and while we can't predict the future, we know we can't predict the future, but, but many of us probably don't expect to face that type of persecution in the future as well. 
And whether that's right or not, I mean, obviously we don't know, but, but even when facing more minor opposition and persecution, the principle still holds true that, that it presents an opportunity to make Jesus' name known. Uh, when, you, when you and I face opposition in our lives as the result of faith in Jesus, we ought to look for those opportunities. We ought to bear witness to Jesus through our response to the opposition that, that we're facing. And, and the main reason that we or the disciples can do that is because Jesus is with us every step of the way. I mean, this is why it's so important that, that the temple was really no longer the focal point, that, Jesus, that, that God was not dwelling in the temple anymore, that he's dwelling with his people because he's with us. He told the disciples, when you go before kings, when you go before governors, I'll provide the words to say, I will be there with you. I will protect you. And that was the promise for them. I, we can bank on that promise as well. When the opportunity arises to bear witness to Jesus in the face of opposition, he'll be right there providing us everything that we need. Whether we feel like it going into it or not, he is promised and he will be there. We really don't need to fear because Jesus said, not a hair of your head will perish. Now, now I think we need to stop right there and say, okay, well, wait a minute. Jesus, you just said in verse 16 that uh, uh, some of you will be put to death. So what do we do with that? Some will be put to death, but yet not a hair on your head will, uh, uh, will, be, will, will perish, will be harmed. So, uh, I mean... Uh, the statement has to be at least somewhat metaphorical because we know that the disciples faced martyrdom. So the promise is not a blanket statement pertaining to physical harm. Rather, it's a promise that nothing which can ultimately harm them will harm them. Uh, you think about uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. He says, don't, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. In other words, physical suffering may come, but we're still safe in Jesus. We're still protected. Even if we're martyred physically, we are secure in Jesus. And our physical death will be made right upon our physical resurrection. So even when that takes place, that's not the end of the story, that we're still secure in Jesus. So in light of the promise of persecution, Jesus urged his disciples to endure through that. He said he would be with them. He said he would provide them what they needed. In his strength, then, they can endure rather than succumb to the trials that they would be facing. And again, just like them, that applies to us as well. Same promises, same application in our lives. But you think about that section, verses 10 through 19. It talks about wars, talks about earthquakes, talks about famine, uh, talks about God's people facing opposition and suffering. It, it might seem like, ooh, is there any hope here? Uh, are, are the wicked destined to prevail because of all of those things? 
Jesus goes on to, to speak about that. and He promised that even in the midst of all of that, that he would return. And upon his return, things would be made right once and for all. So look with me at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are outside in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus was just days from being officially rejected by the Jews and ultimately crucified then upon the cross. The religious leaders at that point may have felt like they were victorious. I'm sure they had that feeling. I mean, perhaps Jesus hanging on the cross led them to that type of a conclusion. But Jesus assured his followers here that uh, the time would come when Jerusalem would face justice from God as the result of this rejection of Jesus. The city would be surrounded. There would be signs in the heavens. And when that happens, Jesus says, those in and around Jerusalem ought to fight the urge to flee into the city for safety and instead flee from the city to go out into the hills. I mean, that's the opposite of what was typical at that time. Common practice in the face of an invasion is to go into a walled city for protection. Makes sense, right? I mean, that, that's what the walls are for. They're for protection. But in this instance, Jesus says the, the destruction has been prophesied. Verse 22, it's fulfilling all that is written. So fleeing into the city is only going to make a person trapped. Uh, it, it's only going to ensure that they meet the same fate as the rest of the city. Those who would heed the words of Jesus would know to go away from the city in order to be spared from that judgment. And, and even though that might all seem like a fear-producing event, talking about signs in the sky and, and nations on earth in distress, I mean, Jesus assured his followers, I think verse 28 is so great. You're going to see these things begin to take place. Straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So, so those signs were all pointing to destruction for, for those who rejected Jesus, for the city of Jerusalem. But those signs also pointed to redemption 
for those who accepted Jesus. So you and I who've accepted Jesus, we ought to have a healthy and a righteous fear of God, but we don't have to have a worrying fear of God because we're marked for redemption. We're not marked for judgment. So when signs like that take place, it's our redemption that is at hand. So instead of distressing over what is to come, we can rest knowing that it doesn't mean destruction for us. It means redemption is drawing near. What an answer to a simple question. Jesus, when's the temple going to be destroyed? <laughs> I mean, I, ju I just wonder if this is the kind of answer that the disciples expected when they asked that question. I, I imagine that was a, a bit more in-depth than they were anticipating at that moment. But that being said, even, even in the midst of all the details given, there's lots of details there, don't we still have so many questions <laughs> regarding the fulfillment of all of those things? And, and as I said, there are, there are many, many interpretations of, of this passage. And so I did just want to quickly run through some of the most common ones. So we'll do that, and then we will attempt to wrap things up today not because we're going to solve the interpretive dilemma that's existed for 2,000 years. I mean, we ought to be humble about that. We're not going to solve it this morning. But because in the midst of questions, we can still find rest in the promise of redemption and rest in uh, Jesus' closing words in the last 10 verses. So, so ways of interpretation. Uh, the first way to interpret this passage is, is to hear Jesus describing only events that are going to lead up to and, and include the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 AD. So roughly 35-ish years after Jesus, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Romans and it was laid siege to and it was, uh, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed. So, uh, you know, I, one way to interpret it is to say this all points to that event. And so, you know, we can read in Acts about the persecution that Jesus said taking place. We already referenced that. Uh, we know from history that the Romans marched on Jerusalem in the late 60s and then laid siege to the city. And we know from the account of the historian Josephus and, and other writers that prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that there were documented signs and wonders in the sky. So, so a valid way to interpret this passage is in light of that event, and only that event. It, it's a valid way. Now, it's not without difficulties. It's not without unanswered questions, but, but that is a way to interpret what Jesus is saying here. Another interpretation is that Jesus was not talking about that event. He was only talking about end times. So, so we know that persecutions of God's people have been ongoing over the past 2,000 years. We can see that. Some would say they're intensifying even today. Um, nations continue to battle against nation. Just listen to the news and we know that's going on, right? Um, earthquakes are present. Famines are present. Jerusalem has now been resettled by the Jews. It's recognized as a nation once again. 
the time will come when uh, the resettled city will be surrounded only to be met by Jesus returning to earth to judge the wicked. I mean, th- this is another, again, valid way to interpret what Jesus is saying. Also has questions to answer, difficulties to work through, but, but valid. Um, an- another interpretation is that Jesus is bouncing back and forth between prophesying about 70 AD and prophesying about the end times. And he doesn't really tell us exactly when he jumps from one to the other, but that's another way to interpret it. Again, questions to answer, difficulties to work through, but but still a valid interpretation. Another interpretation would be the multiple fulfillment view. And so this would hear Jesus' words as referencing both near-term, 70 AD, and distant, long-term, end-times prophecy. So the words that Jesus spoke, they're seen as being fulfilled the first time when Jerusalem fell and will be fulfilled again at the end times. Again, another valid way to interpret it, but also with questions, also with difficulties to work through. And so the question might be, well, Aaron, what do you think? <laughs> I, I, I would hold to the multiple fulfillment view. That's the one I would hold to. Again, I, I'm, I'm aware that there's still questions I can't answer in that. Um, but that's where I would land. But even in holding that view, I do want to make sure that, that I'm supportive of, of those who read and study the text and come to one of the other conclusions based upon the totality of Scripture. And, and uh, there's just certain beliefs within Christianity that, 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 while important, don't rise to the level of heresy, right? They don't rise to the level of needing to break fellowship with, with a brother or sister in Christ who holds a different, uh, different interpretation of, of Luke 21. And, you know, I thought, boy, this is maybe a great spot to, to highlight um, a change that is being proposed by our denominational elders uh, to the FEC Articles of Faith. So in examining our denominational stance on the millennium, which is another end times situation with, with different interpretations, um, the FEC elders have, have proposed a change that would, would remove an official stance on the timing of the millennium. So in their proposed change, the FEC elders are, are recognizing the importance of maintaining the belief that Jesus will return, that he is going to return once again, while, while still allowing different interpretations on the timing of his return due to the, the lack of specificity in the Bible, the different interpretations that, that believers have come to throughout the centuries. And that's as simple of a description as I can give you because I don't want to just really make the sermon uh, overly long. But, but in the next few days, uh, I'm going to send out an email with kind of a more in-depth look on, on that topic specifically. So I'd encourage you to read that when it comes your way. Um, if you have any questions about it, um, about that change that's, uh, the, that's set to be voted on at the next FEC delegate session, please come ask me, come ask Tim, any of the elders. We're happy to have a conversation with you there. Um, but, but turning back specifically to Luke 21, 
I think Jesus challenges us in the last uh, 10 verses to, to consider our posture and our readiness regarding his return. So, so look with me, if we pick it back up in verse 29, what Jesus says here. It says, he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the, on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. You, know, you, see, you see how Luke brackets all of this with a focus on the temple. I think that, that helps our our reading of these, these words, this prophecy, our, our interpretation of it. But, I mean, Jesus says, you know, talks about a fig tree. I, as I was walking uh, around my backyard this past week, I've noticed signs that tell me spring is near. I mean, praise the Lord, there's no snow anymore in my backyard. The snow's gone. But even more than that, I mean, tulips are poking through the ground. Uh, plants and trees are starting to bud I see those things, and I know spring is on the way. And I know, I know the calendar says, oh, today is spring, but, the, the, you know, the season of spring. The, I mean, we know it's near. We can see those signs around us. I mean, that's what Jesus is talking about with the fig tree. A leafing fig tree meant summer was near. So, so the certainty that we have regarding spring and the certainty that you could have with the fig tree regarding summer, that reflects the second coming of Jesus. The signs about which Jesus spoke are indicators that the kingdom of God is near. It is near. And, and so because his coming is certain, and because his coming will be marked by signs pointing to it, we ought to watch and be ready. That's what Jesus encourages us to do here. Watch and be ready. The disciples in the first century would have done well to heed those words. Watch and be ready. We in the 21st century would do well to heed those words, to watch and be ready. And I would say our readiness regarding Jesus' return is more important than our correctness about the timing of it. Our readiness is more important than, than our interpretation, our understanding of the timing of it. Not to say that we shouldn't study that, but, but are we ready? I mean, that's the, the real question. This life is full of distractions. I mean, Jesus, he mentioned some there, dissipation, drunkenness, cares of life. Life is full of distractions. The, the, the length of time that the church has been waiting for Jesus to return probably doesn't make it easier to be watchful. It, it might kind of 
lull us into complacency to a degree. But everything which Jesus talked about will take place. I mean, I look in my backyard, I know spring is near. Spring will come. I have no doubt about that. Fig tree, summer will come. They had no doubt about it. Jesus will come. His words will not pass away. And so he says we ought to, we ought to watch ourselves. So it made me wonder, you know, if I, if I were to, or if you were to watch a replay of your life this past week, if you were to kind of watch that on a screen, would you be watching someone who is ready for Jesus' return? You can just think back over our week and how it transpired, what took place, our conversations, our responses. Would we show ourselves to be someone who's ready? Or would we be watching someone upon whom that day is going to come suddenly, like a trap, to, to use Jesus' words? When, when Jesus returns to this earth, I want to be ready. I want to be ready for that. When I find myself standing before the Son of Man, as Jesus says, I want to be ready. And, and I, pray, I pray that for, for me, for all of us for all of us here today, that, that we would be ready because we know it is coming. His words will not pass away. It will all take place as it is written. Jesus will come again. Are we ready for it? Are we ready for it? Let's stand together and as we close, again, we can, we can worship God. We can be thankful that his words are firm, that they are secure. Even if we disagree on interpretation of it and have lots of questions, we know that they're firm, we know that he's coming, and that that means redemption for us, and so we can praise him for that. Father, I thank you that you are sovereign. I thank you that, that you are in control, that you know what is taking place, things that are transpiring, and that your return is certain. We might have questions and we might desire more clarity on the finer details of that. But we know you will return. And so we give you praise for it. And God, we, we want to heed your words to be ready to watch ourselves. To be ready to stand before you someday. And I thank you that that's even possible. It's only possible because of what would take place just days after you spoke these words. That you would offer yourself on the cross. That you would prove yourself victorious through rising from the dead. Lord, we thank you for that so much. That's what allows us to be ready. And God, guide us as we go through our day today, as we go through our week, weeks that follow, the months, years, Bring that question to our minds. Am I ready? When I look back over my day, was I ready for you to come? Would you guide us in that, strengthen us, give us the wisdom that's needed, help us to encourage one another in that? God, we want to be individuals. We want to be a church body that's ready for you. We worship you this morning. We give you the praise. We pray these things in your name. Amen.